Good morning. My name is Sheila Hahn. Please stay standing as I read today's scripture from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life now I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Sheila. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see all of you. Good to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors, and it is a delight to look at one of my favorite texts uh, in all of Scripture with you this morning. And so if you're not already there, turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I heard a story years ago. I have to be square up front. I don't know if it's a true story, but the story goes like this. There was once a young woman who was hosting a dinner party. She had all of her friends over. She prepared uh, her most famous meal, which happened to be her family's recipe for pot roast. And so everybody sat down. They ate this meal together. They were blown away by how delicious it was. And one of this woman's friends came up to her after the meal and said, you've got to give me that recipe. And so the young woman said, well, no problem. I'll go grab it. So she went and grabbed the recipe card and she took it out to her friend and gave it to her. And as her friend was looking over all the ingredients and what what went into that meal, she noticed that the very first instruction that was given was to take the roast and to cut off each of the ends. And so this friend brought the card to, to, to the woman and said, hey, I noticed this instruction. Can you explain to me exactly what this does for the purpose of the meal? And the young woman said, well, I don't exactly know why we do that, but all I know is every time we make it like that, it turns out delicious. But now that you ask, I've really got to find out. So she went and called her mother from whom she'd gotten the recipe and said, hey, mom, when we make that old family recipe, the pot roast recipe, why is it that we cut the ends off of the roast? And the mother said, well, I'm not exactly sure. That's just the way that my mother did it. So she called her grandmother and asked the same question, Grandma, why is it that we prepare the roast this way? And once again, the same answer was given. I'm not entirely sure, but that's the way that my mother, who actually came up with this recipe, that's the way that she passed it on to me. And so she finally calls the little old great-grandmother, gets a hold of her and says, Great-grandma, why is it that we prepare the meal this way? Why is it that before we do anything else, we cut the ends off the roast? And the great-grandmother said, Well, at the time, we had such a small oven that the whole roast just wouldn't fit. And that story, whether or not it's true, certainly proves a point, which is that there are often things that we do because that's always what we've done. And I think the church, in many ways, is in particularly grave danger of presuming why it does what it does. 
There are all sorts of things that just slip in over time, particularly as churches age, as people age within the churches, as denominational structures age. There tend to be these little things that just slip in to the everyday life of the ordinary Christian and certainly to the, to the regular calendar of the church and the function of the church where things begin to become orthodox without anybody really understanding why. It's important to know why we do what we do. And if you've been around Disciple Church for any length of time, one thing that you know about us and one thing that we share fairly regularly is that our regular approach to preaching is to take a book of the Bible and work through it expositionally and chronologically, meaning we want to begin at the beginning of the book and kind of work our way piecemeal through a book, not in such small chunks that we lose the overarching instruction of the book, but small enough that we can actually digest the instruction that's being given. And there's a whole lot of reasons why we do that. First, we just think it's the best way to actually approach the whole Bible. God willing, that is our plan as a church, is to work through the entirety of Scripture. If all of the Bible is inspired and if all of it is profitable and and has meaning and intentionality, then even the parts that are hardest to understand or, or that most grind against our sensibilities have real and practical purpose for our lives. And the second reason is it's the best way to avoid hobby horses to preach about the things that are easy to preach about or that are, are maybe the most comforting things to preach about or maybe the most popular thing to approach at a given moment. And so we've gotten the question at various times in the life of the church, well, when are you going to address X topic? And our answer historically has been, we'll address it as often as it comes up in Scripture. But on occasion, I think it's good for us to take an opportunity to focus on particular topics regarding the life of the body why we do what we do. And so over these next nine or ten weeks as we approach Easter, our heart and our approach in this next series is really to refocus on our mission and our purpose as a church, to talk about what we say and why we say it. We want to give a deeper sense of what it is that we care about, even outside of just the Sunday morning gathering, namely this That the gospel is not merely a piece of the message that we proclaim, but it is the whole of it. That the gospel is the good news that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. That everything that is necessary for our forgiveness and our salvation and our redemption and our adoption into his family is all finished by him through the cross and through his resurrection. And that he did all of this on behalf of broken people who could not do any of those things for themselves. Now again, if you've been around, that language is familiar, but I don't want us to take it for granted. Because it informs everything in our Christian life. See, our hope is that everyone who walks through the doors of Disciples Church would feel welcome. But our promise as elders is that if you stay around Disciples Church, you will be consistently called into deeper gospel waters. And we make that promise with the confidence that as you come to a fuller and deeper realization of the wonder and the magnitude of the gospel, you will inevitably see God's plan for you as being bigger than mere church attendance. Because the gospel changes everything. It changes how we view ourselves, what we live for and what we care about and what we value and what we're willing to let go of. The gospel changes how you view your circumstances. 
from the moments of celebration to the moments of despair and every moment in between. The gospel changes your relationships. It changes how you approach friends and coworkers and neighbors. It changes the way that you interact with spouses and kids and parents. And we could go on and on and on with all of the things that the gospel affects in our life. But understand then what that means. The gospel is not something that we move beyond. The gospel is not simply the doorway to Christianity. It's not simply the jumping off point for the Christian life. It's not a class from which you graduate. It's not a simple piece of information that once understood can be assumed. In fact, far from that, as soon as we assume the gospel, we've lost it. No, the gospel is like a diamond. Like a diamond with infinite facets. And the longer that we turn it and view it and study it, and the more that we experience its wonder, the more gripping and the more intricate and the more beautiful we discover it to be. In the words of one pastor, the gospel is not the ABCs, but the A through Z of the Christian life. So over the next nine weeks, we're going to be splitting this series into three equal segments, looking at the gospel and its effects on our lives. And the first thing we're going to do over the first three weeks is look at what the work of Jesus accomplished for us and in us. What did Christ do and whom did he seek and what did he enable in me and in us corporately as a body? Second, who are we then because of his work? How do we practically rest in him? How has he gifted us? What blessings do we receive as part of our new spiritual family? Third, how does the gospel then lead us to live? In our families, in our communities, in our church, with an unbelieving world all around us. And so we want to start today by talking about the nature of the gospel. What did Christ actually do for us, and what does it actually mean to be a Christian? If you had to break that idea down to its most bare essentials, to what the essence of Christianity is, what is that essence? And I'm not sure that there's a better passage to talk about that from than from Galatians chapter 2, and I want to draw your attention first to verse 15. Paul says, we ourselves, speaking here of himself and Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, to give a little bit of background about what's happening in this text, Paul is sharing about an exchange that he's just had with the Apostle Peter. Paul had been put in the position to confront his friend and his brother and his fellow pastor, Peter, because Peter's theology had begun to drift. He had begun to assume the gospel, to assume the why behind the what, and in assuming it, he began to lose it altogether. And so Peter, the stalwart of the church, this faithful proclaimer of the gospel, was in need of some correction. Because Peter had started to promote the idea that mere faith in Christ was insufficient, specifically for Gentile Christians. 
Peter's ministering in a primarily Jewish context and as Gentiles are coming into the church and hearing the gospel and proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ, those that were within that church who were from a Jewish background were saying, well, what about the fact that these Gentiles are coming into the church, but they don't follow our culture and our customs and all the things that makes us uniquely Jewish as the people of God, and so shouldn't they be circumcised and shouldn't they follow the Old Testament law and shouldn't they observe all of our customs and observances as an ethnic group? And for some reason or another, whether it was to be with the in crowd or because it tickled his fancy, Peter began to buy into this line and began to communicate to the Gentiles among them that what you really needed wasn't just faith in Christ, but you also needed to observe the law. And so Paul, writing in this moment, is going to say that he has nothing to do with that. He comes at him and he confronts him to his face in front of other people in the city of Antioch and he records for us what he says in this text. And I mean, just imagine, imagine the boldness that it takes to confront Peter because if there's one thing we know about Peter is that he is not a shrinking violet. He doesn't mind confrontation at all. But Paul is saying this is of such importance that's so essential to the Christian faith that it requires correction. He calls out Peter publicly and he says, Peter, you need to listen. You and I, were both Jews by birth. But you need to remember that the hope of the gospel, the gospel that we offer and preach and proclaim, is not found in observing Old Testament law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the gospel provides us what we most desperately need. And notice what Paul tells us that thing that we most desperately need is. In verse 21, here's what he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now we hear that word righteousness and we have all sorts of ideas that begin to sneak their way into our mind. Righteousness is kind of this ye old timey sort of word. It's not a word that we use often in regular conversation, particularly outside of the context of the church. But that word carries with it all kinds of baggage from our own language and vocabulary and usage. And on its face, it just sounds like an old-fashioned religious term, maybe just a way to distinguish what's, what's, uh, what are good actions from those that are bad actions, or good people from those that are bad people. And so we typically use the word righteous to indicate morality. And there's a reason for that that we're going to get into in a moment. But understand that when the Bible uses the term righteousness, it is always emphasizing our relational status with God. There are certainly moral indications associated with this word, but it is not primarily a moral word. It is primarily a relational word. In other words, rather than right behavior, that word righteousness in the Bible carries with it the idea of right relationship, to be right with God. So let's read that verse again with that idea in mind. I do not nullify the grace of God For if right relationship were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And the question Paul is addressing in Galatians chapter 2 is, how do we actually acquire that right relationship with God? What is the means to have a right, unbroken, communal, loving relationship with the God and creator of the universe? 
And if we were asked that question, maybe with a little less theology than we have right now, but if the average person was asked that question, how do you know that you actually have a right relationship with God? The answer, the natural answer that we would give is this. Well, if God is holy and perfect and just and without sin, then in order to be in right relationship with Him, I have to likewise be holy and perfect and just and without sin. And you know what? That's true. But the problem comes when we think that profane, imperfect, unjust, sinful people have the ability to be holy, perfect, just, and without sin. In other words, there is a unique and perfect standard that is required to be met in order to have a relationship with God, and it is one that we are absolutely unable to attain. See, everyone in this world, not just in this room, not just the religious, but the irreligious as well, everyone is born with the innate knowledge that they are not right relationally. And they may or may not connect that rightness to the fact that there is a God, but people inherently know that there is a broken relationship, that there is a lack of connection. We seek that in all sorts of things. We experience relational brokenness. We experience it in our families and with our parents and with our kids and with our spouses, with friends and neighbors and loved ones. We experience the lack of a perfect, right relationship, of relationships that are broken. But we all innately have this desire to experience that rightness, to be perfectly loved and perfectly accepted. The problem, though, is that we look for that rightness, that righteousness, in all the wrong places. And this isn't just true of religious people, it's true of all people. People with a religious bent, who are naturally inclined towards the religious, are going to say, give me the list. Tell me what I need to do. Give me, the, give me the things of what I need to wear and where I need to go and the observances I need to recognize, the things that I need to say, and I'll do those things if it means I can have a right relationship with God. But people with an irreligious bent who do not recognize a God have the very same need and do the exact same thing in a different way. It's the reason that we naturally seek the approval of family and friends and businesses, business acquaintances. It's what motivates people to strive to be beautiful to make money, to achieve fame, to gain influence, to experience comfort, to indulge in sex. What are they both experiencing? Relational separation. And this world tries to offer that relational connectedness in any way that it can. Everyone is being motivated, in other words, to silence the voice of an internal critic that is declaring on your life pass or fail, innocent or guilty, worthy, unworthy, lovable, unlovable. And our greatest fear is winding up in those secondary categories. As we talked about in Ecclesiastes, there is no experience, no pleasure, no achievement, that is enough to bring lasting joy. And now Paul, in this moment, is going to pile on. Because what he's going to say is, there is no amount of religious observance that can declare you innocent, that can justify your life, that can silence that inner critic. 
And that's why Paul in verse 21 says, if you're looking for righteousness with God through the law, you have nullified, made worthless, rescinded the power of the grace of God. In other words, you have looked at the grace of God, the only thing that can actually provide your right relationship with God, and you've said, no thanks, I'll do it on my own. And in order to move into relational union with God, you have to at some point break out of that dysfunctional cul-de-sac of self-salvation. To get out of that loop, to get off the merry-go-round that promises everything and delivers nothing and carries you nowhere. But how in the world do we actually do that? Because people spend their entire lives pursuing that. They pursue it in relationships, and they pursue it in work, and they pursue it in success and financial independence, and they pursue it in, in all sorts of things, and they find in those things no lasting satisfaction. So how do we break that cycle, religious or irreligious? The answer comes in verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because it sounds like a riddle on the face of it. What is Paul actually saying? Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying, when I was living my religious lifestyle, when I was observing all of the Jewish customs, and when I was bragging about my own upbringing and background, when I was pointing to the goodness of my life and all of the things that I was doing in that moment, I was trying to earn my place in God's kingdom, but it led me instead to a spiritual wasteland. I was longing for meaning and happiness and joy, but what I got was the exact opposite, even though from an earthly perspective I was doing everything right. See, prior to coming to the knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ, Paul was viewing his relationship with God as transactional. He was saying, God, I'm going to observe this custom, I'm going to obey this command, I'm going to perform this service, and in exchange, I want a right relationship with you. But when you stop to think about it, how foolish is that approach? Try applying that to any other loving relationship that you have on earth, broken as they may be. So Valentine's Day is coming up in about eight days. Gentlemen, this is your reminder. Write it down. But just imagine Imagine if I arrived home on Valentine's Day evening and I sought out Jessica and I said, listen, I have chocolates and flowers for you and I set up a spa day for you tomorrow and I'm going to take care of the kids and you just go and enjoy and relax and just take it easy and I'm going to take care of everything. And just imagine her response at that. Oh, you shouldn't have. And what if my response to that was, well, it's my duty and it's my obligation and if I wanted to remain in a right relationship with you, I really didn't have an option, did I? Right? There's no honor or love in that. There's nothing affectionate about that. There's nothing for her to rest in, in the comfort and the love of our relationship. And there's no joy that I get in seeing her enjoy that gift. That's a transactional mindset instead of a loving relationship. But do you understand that when we try to pursue our own place in the eyes of God through our actions, through our obedience, through our good works, or recognizing his good gift of salvation, thinking that we can somehow demonstrate our appreciation and our thankfulness to him as a means of paying him back, 
we are doing the exact same thing. God, here's this good gift, and I'm showing you how much I love you. But does the recipient of that gift actually receive any joy if they know that you're doing it out of obligation? Of course not. And Paul is saying, in my efforts to earn God's love, I was actually running away from the love he'd already provided. I was saying, I don't want your love on your terms. I don't want a love that meets me where I am. I don't want a love that's free to me because it costs you everything. I feel like I need to give you something to really show you I'm serious, to earn my place. And listen, if you think for even a moment that that's a simple thing for us to understand intellectually, you're wrong. We wrestle with this constantly. If you read back through the lives of great men of God who loved and devoted their lives to the work of the ministry and to the work of God, you find them wrestling with this concept constantly. Martin Luther devotes years of his life and studies in the church and devotes himself to the Word of God. He ministers to other people. He he delivers the sacraments. He does everything he can think to do, but he can't get past this one simple idea that our righteousness actually comes from God as a gift from Him and not something that we earn. Until he reads Romans 1.17, which says that the just shall live by faith. In other words, the life that you have from God is delivered to you through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he wrestles with those texts for years and years. And I just wonder, I just wonder how often we have people sitting in churches who can give the Bible answer, can give the classroom answer to where our hope lies and where our salvation comes from and where our joy springs from, but are day in and day out living in this transactional lifestyle, claiming to believe that salvation is a gift freely provided by God and that everything is finished and that you're perfectly accepted and loved, and you could state that out loud, but in your heart there is a disconnect and a brokenness. Or you claim relationship, but you live out of obligation. And part of the reason that I can say that that confidently is because I've been there. And Paul's saying, in an effort to try to earn the love of God, I was running from it. And I didn't even know. I was so blinded by the appeal of religiosity and what I could accomplish and what I could achieve that I didn't even see his goodness and his grace in it. And Paul says, I had to die to that mentality in order to live to God. And he says, through the law, I died to the law. In other words, Paul is saying, I had to come to the end of myself. I was chasing the wind through religion And in doing all of these right things and going down all of these corridors and pursuing God down all of these paths, what I realized is at the end I wasn't chasing God, I was chasing me. Brother, sister, friend, what a terrible way to live. To try to chase down and earn something that God is freely handing you. And Paul says, when I finally realized that God's love for me was not dependent on me, but that it was rooted in his faithfulness and his goodness and not my ability to perform, it was a relief. 
was a weight lifted off of his back because it finally allowed him to die to the law that he was trying to serve. He was wearing that law like a noose around his neck, like a weight on his back while he's trying to stay above water. And he said, in in dying to the law, I was finally able then to live to God. So go back to the marriage analogy. Instead of this conditional, transactional, obligatory exchange, think about the words of covenant that we share in marriage. For richer, for poorer, in good times and bad, till death do us part. There are no amount of words or instruction that I could give to Jessica to make her love me more. And if I went up to her and said, love me, love me more than you're loving me, do more. It's not an expression of love and there's no freedom of that. At best, I'm putting an obligation on her. But when I'm able to go to her and say, no matter what, I love you. There's freedom in that. And remember, that's just on an earthly broken level. Imagine that kind of freedom experience when God says, I love you, not because of you, but because of me. I love you. Because what God is ultimately after is not my external adherence, but my internal affection. He's after the relational, not the transactional. So here's the big question next. How does this actually come about? Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one, no one will be justified. And Paul here in his explanation is going to use another familiar word. Here's what he says. We are justified through faith in Jesus and not by the law. And that's another church word that we throw out often without explanation and we use it in context all the time, but often we don't even necessarily understand what it means. So justification is an interesting word. It's a legal term at its root. It has the idea of being found innocent. And the reason that that particular definition is important is because it's not a declaration that you were inherently innocent, but that you have been found innocent. It's the perspective of the viewer, the perspective of the judge, not the perspective of the person who's in the position of defense. In other words, Paul is saying we are justified, we are made right, viewed holy, by the, not by the works of the flesh, We are justified only by the declaration of God because of the works of Jesus on the cross. In other words, what enables me to move from a transactional exchange with God to a loving relationship with Him? I need to see the perfect assurance of God's love. I needed a perfect God to do what my imperfect heart could never accomplish. And what was the proof of that love? Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ.
in what way have you been crucified with Christ? And none of us were there. This happened 2,000 years ago. We didn't give consent in that moment and say, yes, I'd like to sign away and allow Jesus to take these sins from me. No, Jesus goes to the cross for those whom he loves, provides forgiveness and assurance for sins yet to be committed. And the question that we frequently ask is this, when Jesus went to the cross and died in your place, how many of your sins had you, had you performed yet? None of them. And yet Jesus doesn't shy away from the cross and he doesn't wait to say, well, let's see if they kind of figure this out on their own and get their life together and let's see if they're really serious. Let's see how deep their repentance really runs. Let's see how much faith they can actually muster and then maybe I'll take their sins to the cross. No, before you even had the ability to commit a sin, Jesus pays for it on the cross. Imagine the implications of that. It's what Luther called the great exchange This idea that on the cross, Jesus took all of your sins, past, present, and future, onto himself. That he took the eternal wrath of God, intended for you, designed for the commission of sin. And he put it on the one person in the history of the world who did not deserve it. Absolute injustice performed at the cross so that justice could be met. And in that very same moment where your sins were placed on him, Christ's righteousness, his rightness with the Father, his relational connection, his unbroken fellowship is gifted to you. A great exchange indeed. Since Jesus died on the cross for my sins, God is now willing and able to declare me righteous and holy and accepted and redeemed. And the only way for me to live in the power of that new found and assigned position is to receive it by faith, to believe what God has declared about me is true. So my actions are not what makes me a Christian. What makes me a Christian is how God views me. It's not being good or living morally or doing the right thing or being kind to people. In the words of one author, faith is the state of being grasped by the unconditional claim and promise of God. It is not primarily the action of somebody who does not believe in order to believe. It is the recognition of a state of being where God is claiming you as his own. So understand what that means for our message as a church. What it means for our message as we communicate the gospel to other people, as we declare the gospel week by week, as we interact with our neighbors and our loved ones and our friends and those who don't know Jesus Christ. Imagine then how that influences all of those relationships and what it is that we actually proclaim. Because when churches and religious people make the message of Christianity do more, try harder, be better, they make a hash of the gospel. 
They work at cross-purposes of what Jesus Himself set out to do. And they nullify, make void, worthless, empty the grace of God. In other words, when we declare that Christianity is primarily a function, a morality, a behavior, what we are saying is, Jesus, you shouldn't have wasted your time. You should have just stayed home. We've got it. It's an affront to a holy and generous God. So why then do churches and pastors, ourselves included, Why do we so often feel the need to buttress the radical grace of God with the dead works of the law? I hear people talk all the time in Christian circles about this idea, and they say, well, we've got to balance law and grace. And so if we're talking a little bit about too much about grace, we need to add a little bit of law in there so people don't go too far. And if people start, start becoming a little legalistic, well, then we'll start talking about grace again. Do you understand that the gospel has nothing to do with balance? That the scale, as it were, was that all of humanity and all of mankind was so weighed down by sin that we descended into hell. That that's the balance we deserve. And that even in our best efforts to try to earn for ourselves what was freely given, all we did was make ourselves more guilty by the law because we presumed that God wasn't in fact good and that we could do it. Balance has nothing to do with it. And it's a fool's errand and an affront to the grace of God to try to balance out His grace with anything. As if we could anyway. See, the only way for me to live in the power of that position is to receive it by faith. And if I'm trying to balance out the grace of God with anything, what motivates that? How are people able to declare the goodness of grace in one moment only to neuter it with the dead religion of works in the next? Because by nature, we are afraid of the radical nature of the gospel of grace. We're afraid of it. If I believe that God's acceptance of me truly has nothing to do with my ability to perform, if I believe that his love neither waxes nor wanes, that since I did nothing to earn my salvation and my acceptance before God, I cannot inherently do something to unearn my acceptance or salvation from God, and then what is the motivation to live an obedient life? And so people afraid of of what Christians will do if given too much grace, try to buttress it with something else to keep people in line. In other words, grace is scary for some because it means that we lose the power to manipulate behavior. And I understand how radical this sounds, right? I get it. But here's the truth. When we preach a radical grace, It means that some will inevitably use it as a license to sin. But the answer to that problem is not to neuter grace in an effort to control behavior. The answer is to declare grace all the more in the understanding that the Holy Spirit will do the work of sanctification in the lives of His people. It's the reason, by the way, that we read the confession that we did today. 
a confession that is some 360 years old, that Christians just like us over time have been reciting together to be reminded that it is God and God alone who does the work of justification and sanctification and glorification in His people. So Martin Luther said it this way. He said, it is most necessary that, sh- that we should know that justification is by faith alone and that we should teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. There's Luther with his classic understatement. Beat it into their heads. Why? Because we don't believe it and we quickly forget it. Because we are foolish and errant creatures so consumed with our own self-salvation projects and earning what God has freely given that we would just as soon give His gift back to Him and do it ourselves. And so we have to have grace beaten into our heads. So here is our hope as elders, as members, as those who attend Disciples Church. Our hope is that we as a people would be done with making an apology or carving out exceptions for grace. Grace is scary because you can't control it. You can't limit its application and you can't dole it out. And if grace doesn't seem wild and impossible to you, then you haven't even begun to understand it. And likewise, if grace seems tame and familiar, then you have forgotten why you need it in the first place. So then, what is the motivation for the new life in Christ? Where does the power for the new Christian life come from? We find the answer in the second half of verse 20, which says this, Now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So here's the final word on the matter. Only Christ can live the Christ life. That's it. He's the only one who can live the Christ life. But because his life has been applied to me, everything that is true of him is now true of me. So, we get to live by faith. That what God declares about me is true. Not how I feel about myself in any particular moment, certainly not how I behave in every moment, but that the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, my confidence for the life I live is in the life that Christ lived for me. And I do not want to live for the things Christ died for. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the hope that we declare to a lost and dying world that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So years ago, a story was told about a great old evangelical theologian 
This man had come to the United States. He was doing a tour of various colleges, and he arrived at one point in the University of Chicago. He was having this conversation, uh, this, this kind of classroom conversation with a group of theology students there. And, and in that moment, one of, the, one of the students raised his hand and said, uh, sir, could you please try to summarize your whole life's work in theology in a sentence? And this brilliant theologian who had written literally scores of books said something like this. He said, yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. May we at Disciples Church, may our theology and our confidence and the message that we proclaim be that simple and yet that profound. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for all that you've accomplished. God, we admit that we struggle with this conversation. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to give up control. It's hard for us to recognize what it is that you've done on our behalf. It's hard for us to live in the freedom of that. It's hard for us to live a life that is reflective of the gospel that we believe. And God, yet our, our lives are most glorifying to you when we are most dependent on you. And so, God, we want to depend on you. Even to the extent that we struggle depending, we admit our own weakness and ask that you would bring us to that point of dependence. And God, we can do that even though it might be scary for us because we believe that you are that good and that faithful that you are that good of a father, that you can hear the cries of people who say, I'm scared to depend on you, and reach down and swoop us up. God, we don't claim to fully understand your grace, and to do so would be to make fools of ourselves. But I pray, God, that as a church, we would not shy away from or apologize for the message of the gospel of grace, that we would shout it from the mountaintops that we would share it with our neighbors, that we would have conversations with our loved ones, and that we would live in the freedom and the dependence of what it is to have had our old self crucified on the cross with you and to now have a new life that was lived by you. And so we thank you that the Father sees us the way that he sees Christ. What an amazing truth. Help us to believe. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.